super fun to see the stage full of people committing to be in this place. It's really a beautiful testimony to God's work here. You need help or you got it? All right, so if you are a kid, if you want to hang out with other kids and learn about the way of Jesus with other kids, Miss Jessica is over there. Uh, join her, and she will uh, lead you to the, the kids' little apprentice experience over on the other building. If you're an adult and you're stuck with me, uh, this morning what we're going to talk about is what does it mean to be faithful? We're going to, I don't know if you ever thought about that, like you go to a doctor, right? And a doctor's able to like both diagnose and prescribe, right? So the doc, you go into the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, you're sick. And then they give you something to do about it. In the spiritual life, sometimes we're like, well, how do you know if you're faithful? How do you, how do you diagnose and what do you prescribe? Do you, what do you do? And what we're going to see is that as we enter the first century, God is on the move. God is taken on human form in the person of Jesus. He's mounting this rescue operation. He's moving into the neighborhood. He's revealing himself to the people in Israel, to the leaders and the people throughout the land. And what we see is that these people called to be the presence of Jesus on earth, called to worship the God of their ancestors, end up in this moment, this decisive moment, end up actually resisting God's new work in the world. The people that are called to be faithful end up being unfaithful. And what I want to do is, by the end of this time, explore why and how do we avoid the fate that they ended up in. What we're going to see in today's text is the end of John 11. So we've been journeying through John since May, and we've been sort of plugging along and what we see in chapter 11 is that you see Jesus feel, hears that his, bro, or his friend, Lazarus, is sick. So he goes to this place called Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem. He meets Mary and Martha, who are Lazarus's sisters. Shows up on the scene, and he ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. It's this unbelievable moment about the life-giving power of God. And then what we see is their response. And this is it. Verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Right? Tattletales. Right? Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing signs. If we let him, let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? 
But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. All right, so what we see in 45 and 46 is we have these different beliefs. We have some people responding like, yes, God, you're working through the person of Jesus. Awesome, I want to be a part of it. Then you have these other people that are like, not so much, right? And we've seen this sort of diverse reaction to Jesus throughout the gospel of John. If you've been in the journey with us, right, you see in chapter six, Jesus feeds 5,000 people out in the wilderness and people are like, we want to make you king, right? And then later that chapter, like half of them bail. They're like, you're asking too much. We cannot do this, right? As we continue through John, you get into John seven, we learn that people are so upset, right, that they want to kill Jesus. He goes to the feast of tabernacles and some people are like, yes, you are the water of life. You are the light of the world. And other people are like, we have to arrest this guy. Get to chapter 10, right? Jesus says, oh, I'm the good shepherd. I'm here to die for my sheep that they may experience abundant life. Some people are like, yes. And other people grab stones to stone him. This is where we're at in verses 45 and 46. We're having this sort of difference of response and reaction Right, you have these few that go to the Pharisees and the chief priests, right? They're like, dude, you guys got to do something about this. And they call the Sanhedrin, which is like a ruling body at that time that's headed by the chief priest. Verse 48, I think, captures the essence of their concern. It's this. If we let him go on like this, him being Jesus, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. That's the NIV. Now, If you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll know almost all of it is written in Greek. This is one of the few instances, like, so the Bible's in front of you in the pews or on the piano, right? Those are NIV. Great translation. This moment, though, this translation misses it a little bit. And I I don't do this very often, but I'm going to do the ESV now so you can see a slight difference. This is how it ends. Well, this is the whole thing, and I think only part of it's going to be projected. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you notice the difference there? Temple versus place. In Greek, the word is topos, which is actually place. It doesn't say temple. So it gets to this question of motivation. So what are they really worried about? Are they really worried that the temple is going to be destroyed? Or are they worried that their place of standing and privilege, their place in the social hierarchy as the leaders, the ones who have influence, the ones who have power, if that is going to be taken from them? Beasley Murray, who's a New Testament theologian, the word biblical commentary, he writes this, the concern of the rulers accordingly was primarily for their own position, not for the temple or the people. They're concerned about self-preservation. They're concerned about their power. They're concerned about their pride. Now Caiaphas, kind of knowing this, uh, he starts in on verse 49 and 50. He's like, you know nothing at all. When's the last time you started a group meeting like that? (laughs) Which kind of leans into, man, something is up with the character of these people. Right? He starts the meeting like this. They're concerned about self-preservation. And then he goes this. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now you can read this as sort of a Machiavellian pragmatism. But more likely it's like, hey, let's preserve our place. And even if this guy dies, so be it. 
It's pretty sad, actually, if you think about it. Right? So the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the Pharisees, these are meant to embody the faithfulness of God on earth. And yet in this really important moment, when God takes on human flesh, moves into the neighborhood, mounts this awesome rescue mission in this very moment when they can welcome the king of kings on earth, what do they do? They turn and oppose him in order to maintain their own privilege, their own place, their own position of power and influence. Now, there's this fascinating thing that happens at this moment in the text. So John is like, but guess what? Right? Caiaphas is the high priest, right? They're like, hey, this guy's going to die, but what is it going to do? It's going to bring the scattered Jews around the world. They're going to come together. He utters this prophecy. And John is like, yes, but. Actually, you're sort of onto it a little bit, but you're missing the whole point. Actually, Jesus is the one who God is sending, and yes, he will die. But he won't just die to bring in the scattered Jews of the world. He will die for the whole world to bring all of the people of God together, right? If we know this, if you know sort of the arc of the New Testament, what happens, right? Jesus is killed. He is resurrected in three days. He hangs out with some folks so they know, hey, he's really alive. He ascends to be with the Father. He sends the Holy Spirit down on the early church. And then the Spirit comes, and then Jesus is like, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem, going to Samaria, and then going to the ends of the earth, right? So people will come to believe in him. The scattered people of God will come to know him. Jesus will return. When he returns, he will establish his kingdom, and all the people of God will gather at this massive party to celebrate the return of God. Now, they don't all know this, right? But Jesus and John have been dropping clues throughout the entire gospel. If you've been with us, you've seen this, right? That the inclusion that happens as a result of Jesus' death is not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. And this has happened a number of times. Secondly, he's been dropping clues that Jesus is going to die and through his death is going to initiate this massive inclusion of people. This won't be projected. I'm just going to do a quick highlight here. John 1. This is 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Right? There's this push away. This starts in John 1. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Right? These people are not going to just be blood relatives. Notice that word. Not of blood. They're not just going to be descendants of Abraham. They're going to be people from all over the world who believe. John 3.16, right? For God so loved, what? The world that he gave his only son. John 4, right? The message goes to the Samaritans who are not Jews, right? The message, Jesus says to this woman at a well, he's like, you know what? I am living water that will well up in you into eternal life. And then what happens? She believes. Then her whole village believes. And what do they say at the end? They're like, we know that you are the savior of the world. John 10, Jesus says, guess what? I am the good shepherd. And I'm going to include not just people in this flock, but I have flocks that you don't even know about that will come and I will gather on the last day. Right? Throughout the gospel of John, there's this great inclusion that is going to happen. Also, right, throughout the gospel of John, there's been hinting at Jesus dying as a part of that plan. John 1, 
John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God refers back to the Exodus, right? What happens to the Lamb? The Lamb dies. John 2, Jesus says, hey, I am the temple, right? It will be destroyed, and in three days it will be rebuilt, referring to his body, that he will die and be resurrected. John 3, he says, hey, there's going to be a serpent, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness with Moses. And then when people looked on that statue, they were healed of their snake bites. So the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, right, on a cross. John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life who gives himself for the world. John 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, right? There's these clues throughout the gospel of John that Jesus is going to die and that through his death, he is going to include all the people who believe in him, both in Jerusalem, Samaria, until the ends of the earth. There's all these clues, right? That's the flow of John 1 through 11. God is revealing himself through the person of Jesus, what he is doing in the world. And there's these responses. Some people believe, some people resist. My question is, how did the Pharisees, how did the chief priests, how did these rulers, how did they miss it? All these clues about who Jesus was and what he's going to do. How at this decisive moment in human history, in the history of all creation, did they miss it so bad. The very people that really think they're trying to be the faithful presence on earth, they blow it. And how do we not do the same thing today? How do we learn from their mistakes so that we end up being faithful as God moves within us? So that God moves as he's moving in your life, in your family, in your workplace. How do we see what he's doing? Identify and make sure that we don't miss the boat too. It's really what I want to focus on for the rest of this message. How do we remain faithful? James Dunn He's a scholar, he's a theologian. Uh, He notes that there's a vast amount of rabbinic writing in the first century that focuses on three things, circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath keeping. There's this obsession with boundary markers, right? So they're living in an age, they're ruled by Rome. You have this Greco-Roman cultural influence that is just massive, and the leaders, the faithful, are tr- what they're trying to do is focus on external things to say, hey, if we just get these things right, we'll know who's in and who's out. The problem with these is they're highly visible, but they're really superficial. They're focused on externals. And I think the truth is, if we're not, I think there's a couple slides in there. There you go. The truth is, I think if we're not careful, we'll end up doing the same thing. I think the general flow of our life is towards external focus, right? This is FOMO, right? Fear of missing out, right? This is YOLO. You only live once, cram it all in, travel the world, do whatever, rock it, you know? Or in work, there is this push and pull to really give yourself to your work. Awesome, great. Or your studies, or track, or learning a violin, or whatever, 
There is this push in our life towards focusing on externals. We can see them. They're easy to measure. They're easy to pay attention to. And I think the truth is we can do this in our spiritual life with Jesus, too. We can turn our life with Jesus into like a checklist that we can see and measure. I remember uh, a few years ago, I decided, you know what? I am going to do like some sort of prayer time every single day. Has anyone ever done that or tried? Okay, so I remember about halfway in, you know, you have like, you've built up this resume at this point. And I remember there'd be mornings where I'd be like, well, I'm just going to read one line of scripture and say thank you to God and check it off and be like, at least I prayed today, you know? And I turned this sacred, beautiful moment where I could connect with God into this external that I was just trying to check off so I didn't lose my sort of prayer streak. This is the thing. It is good to do good things in the world. We're not going to dismiss that. But we must not forget our hearts. When we go to the New Testament, Jesus is constantly talking about heart awareness. And actually, faithfulness flows from our hearts, right? And this is one of the ways that Jesus totally speaks into the Pharisees and the rulers of that day. And he has some really intense things to say. Exhibit 1, Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now imagine drinking a cup of tea. Do you care about the outside or the inside? I do not want to drink tea with a bunch of mold in the inside, right? Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Right? Jesus is like, focus on the inside, and the outside will take care of itself. But you miss the boat if you focus on the outside and don't pay attention to what is going on within you. Right? Be aware of your hearts. There's a lot of reasons for this. One is that God actually really wants to be in relationship with us. Consider Isaiah 29, 13. This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Right? Jesus wants to be connected to us, not just based on sort of cognitive assent. I believe that. No, he actually wants to have a relationship with us. Two, Jesus is super clear in the New Testament that action, externals, flow from the heart. Matthew 15. The Pharisees are all upset because Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. They're like, what is wrong with you guys? Wash your hands. And Jesus is like, "Uh, actually, sin flows from the heart. Greed, lust, selfishness, all these things, they flow from the heart. They're not from hand washing. Right? They miss the boat. They miss the point and they begin to drift away from faithfulness because they forget about the heart. Think about Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas, the chief priest, the Pharisees. How do they get to this moment in history? They're there deciding what to do about Jesus, right? The overflow of their heart says, we're going to protect our place, our standing, our power, our privilege. Throw that guy out. Let's get rid of him. They're shaped by their practices, right? The outside of the cup is dirty, or the outside is clean, but the inside is dirty. Paul writes in the sixth chapter of Romans, thanks be to God 
that though you used to be slaves to sin, right? The thing that brings us away from God, that draws us to evil. You have come to obey God from your heart. The pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance, right? From the heart flows our obedience. God wants to transform us from the inside out. The thing is, God usually waits for us to join him on the process. One of the ways that we actually connect relationally to God is as we are paying attention to our hearts, we're communing with God and we're learning about what he cares about. We're learning about who he is. This is why God generally doesn't instantly change us. Because he actually wants to partner with us, be with us, connect to us in the process of our transformation from the inside out. This is why you're sort of wondering sometimes, like, why can't God just change it? Because he wants to be with you in the process of realizing that you are a limited creature, that I am a limited creature that is totally dependent on the power of God. In our culture, it's so easy to pay attention to externals. I think God's invitation today to you today is like, hey, so what is going on in your heart? Do you know? If you were to slow down, do you actually know what's going on within you? How God is working within you right now to transform you into his image? Or are you just like going about life and God's waiting there like a gentleman saying, hey, I'm, I'm waiting here. You ready to start? I think another thing uh, in our context, if we want to remain faithful, if we don't want to miss the boat or the point, in our culture, there's this massive bent towards the individual and individual self-assessment and sort of individual determining what is best. There's this assumption that the individual knows best. It's this dynamic. You've ever been in a room and someone's like, you know, I kind of feel like, and then they sort of narrate a statement and then you're like, well, they feel it. What can I do? Right? And so there's this funny thing where it's like, I feel faithful. Who am I to say? Right? There's this real interesting default to the individual to be able to say whether they are faithful or not. Now, on one level, this is good, right? Because it gives people room. It gives people room to discern individually. It gives people, uh, it creates a, hopefully a non-judgmental space, right? Where someone can say, well, I'm thinking this. And now everyone's like, no way, you know? They're not like Caiaphas, like, you know nothing, you know? And hopefully it leads to a measure of humility where we're not presuming to know more about people than they know about themselves. And yet, imagine you're in this room in the Sanhedrin. They're gathered to there. Do you think any of them think they're being unfaithful? No, they don't. I mean, that's my guess. My guess is the way they are trying to approach God has shaped them into the kind of people that they are blind to their own faithfulness or lack of it. They're shaped into the kind of people that cannot actually see clearly. This is why in the New Testament, you will never see Jesus or Paul say, hey, are you faithful? Good. You know, if they're like, yes, I am. They will always say, check for fruit. Always. In the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament more generally, right, faithfulness is determined by fruit bearing. Jesus says it time and time again. Consider Matthew 7, right? Every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. 
A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, good fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How do we illustrate that we are faithful to Jesus? By the fruit that we bear in our lives. Why? Not because we tried super hard and rocked it, but because God has worked in our hearts, transformed us from the inside out, and what happens as a result? We bear good fruit because God is doing good work within us. Our fruit illustrates whose we are. But this doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we change immediately. But you should be able to look at your life and say, ah, the fruit on the tree of my life is getting progressively better. You should be able to see that. Right? The Spirit partners with us as we create space for Him to work. And as we do that, right, God is like, oh, I love doing this with you. And He transforms us. Now, one of the problems with sort of the individual knows best and this idea of self-assessment is that often we're really blind to that process. Like we think, oh, I'm so faithful. Like, look at the tree. It's so awesome, you know, full of pomegranates or whatever fruit you like. But sometimes we need actually other people to speak into our life because sometimes we have a hard time judging whether the fruit is good or not. So I took a risk this week, and I asked three people these two questions. And I'm going to invite all of you to take the same risk. Question one. Can you see God working in my life, changing me in good ways? What if you asked three people in your life that you trust, that you love, that love you enough that they will be honest with you? Don't ask someone you know is just going to like stomp on you, you know? Ask someone that you know loves you, but also knows you. Can you see God working in my life, changing me in good ways? Question two. Are there any rough edges of my character or behavior that I should give attention to? My experience is that people that want to be faithful invite other people, community in, to help them see clearly. Do you want to be shaped into Jesus' image? Do you want to be faithful? I encourage you then to invite a few people in. Help you to see yourself clearly. Now at this point, maybe you're sitting there and you're starting to have a little bit of a panic attack and you're like wondering like, ah, you know, freaking out a little bit. Like, and, you, and even cognitively, emotionally, you might be starting to go and like, oh, this was he says it's about grace, but really this is just about performance, right? Emotionally, we start to feel that. Like, well, if someone's going to be telling me whether I'm doing okay, like, oh, this is just about earning. And it's like, no, 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 actually that's not true. It is not about earning. Jesus focuses on the heart. And that as we focus on our heart, he transforms our lives so that we bear good fruit. Sometimes we need some help in that process to make space for God to move within us, to transform us from the inside out. 
You know, Jesus says very clearly, he's like, what is the most important thing? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. But maybe you're like me and you've tried this. You're just like, love God, love God. I'm going to try harder, try harder. I'll tell you right now, it doesn't really work. You cannot just try harder to love God. And what you'll see in the New Testament, it doesn't say try harder. It actually says something different. It says train. It's not about trying harder. It's not about earning. It's about training. Paul says this all the time. He says to Timothy, he's like, exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. You know, workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God, a life that is shaped by practices and rhythms is far more so making you fit both for today and forever. In uh, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul also uses this analogy of the Olympics. He's like, hey, you know what? Every Olympian, they live in Greece, right, Corinth? Hey, every Olympian, the guys you see running about, they're training strictly. They're really putting in this training so that they can win the race. He's like, how much more so for us that we might bear good fruit? Paul is alluding to discipline. He's alluding to training. He's alluding to rhythms and practices that shape us into Jesus' image. Right? The training is what helps keep our hearts soft. The training is what gives God permission, this space, right, to work within us that we might bear good fruit. Now you might be wondering, okay, so what is training then? Right? Historically, in the life of Jesus and throughout history, there's been a lot of elements of this training. But it could be simply things like taking time each week to read the scriptures, each day to marinate in the scriptures. And how is this training? Well, because you're orienting your mind around who God is, around who you are, the story of the scriptures, rather than the stories you tell yourself, rather than the narratives you live into about who you are and what the world is about. So you're returning to say, all right, I'm training my life, right? Because one thing, right? Sometimes we think we approach like our 15-minute quiet time in the morning. We think this is the point of the spiritual life. My friends, it is not. The point of the spiritual life is to love God and neighbor 24-7, 365. That 15 minutes you spend in the morning or three hours is training so that you can do that all day long. Marinate in the scriptures. Take time for Sabbath and solitude so that you can take some, make some absence in your life, take a break so that God can actually be with you, speak to you, shift you, transform you from the inside out, right? You're creating space for God to work within you. This is fasting. This is service, right? So that we're not at that moment with Caiaphas saying, I'm gonna protect my own place rather than give myself to others, right? The difference between Jesus and Caiaphas is Jesus is gonna give himself for the world. Caiaphas is going to give Jesus so that he can remain in his place. Service, confession, corporate worship, community, having a people around us that can speak to us, that can help us move closer to the person of Jesus, Training helps us to see the clues and the signs so we know how God is moving in the world. Training helps to shape our hearts so that we're in tune to the kingdom and love of God. Too often I think we presume, right, faithfulness to the way of Jesus without actually considering the formative and foundational rhythms that Jesus adopted. Right? Jesus didn't just get to a place of faithfulness. 
Jesus actually embodied rhythms and practices. He prayed. He created spaces of solitude. He fasted to be shaped into the kind of person, right, that would faithfully follow God. And yet sometimes we think, oh, God's just going to do this for me. He's just going to transform me without any training. It would be like, you know what? I just want to run a marathon. Like, now I'm going to go, right? No, no, no. If you try and do that, I mean, try it right now. If you haven't trained, I'll tell you two things. One, you probably won't do it. Two, you're going to get injured if you try. And three, you are definitely going to hate it. But if you train for a marathon and then you run it, you can actually complete the race. The same thing with following Jesus. Sometimes we approach the New Testament, you know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or whatever, and we're like, this is so hard. Yeah, it is if you don't train. Right? As we train, God works within us, transforms us from the inside out so that we bear fruit and are faithful. This is why Jesus says, uh, he says it in Matthew 11. Let me find it. He says this, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the message, walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Right? Training isn't about trying harder. It's about creating space for God to work within us. It is about offering our heart and our lives to God so he can transform us from the inside out, right? So that we bear fruit. You are not the fruit bearer. God is. You are the one who invites God into the process that he can transform you. But Jesus wants us to have his heart. He wants us to bear his kind of fruit, right? So that we can be faithful in our historical moment and not miss the boat. It's why we often, in this place at Wellspring, we're often talking about practices, right? This is why, you know, you might get, if you've been around, you might get annoyed that I all, I'm often talking about Abel. Well, I'm often talking about this because these are the things, the ways that we create space for God to work. This is the training. It's not the end goal. It's the training. Attend. We're going to make space every week to be present to God. To slow down. This could be Sabbath. This could be solitude. This could be taking some time just to slow down at work during lunch and just slow down and be like, all right, God, I'm here. Let's talk. Right? This is B. This is bless. Taking time to bless people inside and outside the church. Not because in the end we think that's going to change the world, but we think that it will change us. And in the process, we will bless other people but so that we're not as self-centered. We're creating space to say, I'm going to bless people in this room. I'm going to bless people outside the church to say, you know what? Like, this is what Jesus is about. This is what I want to be about. So we train by blessing. This is why we put up there L, learn. Take some time to learn from the scriptures, right? So we're reminded of who God is, who we are, and the story that we're living within. E is eat, taking time every week to just eat with people to be present because Jesus slows down in the busyness of his life to be present to people in community and people outside church walls. 
And if we want to be shaped into Jesus' image, we have to do the things that Jesus did. This is the training. This is why, you know, last week I said, hey, grab one of these bookmarks, right? This is our Pray for Five bookmark. If you don't have one, they're out by that door. Write five people that you know in your life that aren't experiencing much of God, much of Jesus, and pray for them every day that you might love them as much as God loves them. Right, that God might actually give you opportunities to bless them. This is a part of your training into becoming and practicing the way of Jesus. This is why we're fasting during Lent. We are intentionally creating an absence in our life to make space for the presence of God. Right, this is why we have groups on Wednesday night focused on prayer and Sabbath. This is why we have a group on Thursday focused on prayer. This is why Sunday morning, there was like 20 of us gathered up on the stairs and all crammed into this side room, creating space to just pray for folks in our life, pray about fasting and pray for ourselves. Draw near to God. Those are lots of ways to respond. I guess my question to you is, what is the training regimen that God is inviting you to take seriously today? If I said all those and you're like, I have no idea, uh, this is actually a great series, uh, the Good and Beautiful series, Good and Beautiful God, Good and Beautiful Community, Good and Beautiful Life. And each week they go through a chapter and then they focus on a discipline, a practice, a rhythm, and they help us pay attention to the stories in our heads, right? And then give us practical ways to respond. I'm gonna leave these on the stage and you can take a look after service. See if that might be something that might help give some structure to you going forward. How is God inviting you to train that your heart may be soft, that you may bear fruit? And before we enter worship, uh, what I want us to do, just to sort of recenter ourselves on the person of Jesus, is we're just gonna, we're gonna celebrate communion together. As a reminder that the center of everything we do is Jesus. The truth is, in our text for today, we're only a few days away from the Lord's Supper, right? It's chapters 13 through 17, and we're going to lean into that all summer. Just this discourse that Jesus has with his disciples. And at that dinner, he grabs some bread. He gives thanks to it. He looks at his disciples and he said, This is my body that is broken for you. Take and eat it. He grabs some wine on the table, not grape juice, but this is pretty close. He said, this is, the, this is my blood, which I offer to you that sins may be forgiven. Take it. Drink it. We come to the table of Jesus' presence today, not earning anything. We come to the table of Jesus' presence to be fed by him, to be restored by him. And we come to the table, hopefully, giving our hearts to him. And this is a moment where we can actually apply some of the message saying, all right, Jesus, I actually want you to transform me from the inside out. So I invite you, before you come up, just take an honest moment with God and say, okay, this is where I'm really at, God. 
work with me where I am, transform me from the inside out that I might bear fruit. And after you celebrate communion, I just invite you as we enter worship just to listen to God's speaking voice. How is he inviting you to train that you might be shaped into his image, that you might be transformed from the inside out and bear fruit, not just that 15 minutes in the morning, but throughout the day and forevermore. I'm gonna invite the worship team up and if you're serving communion and if you could come up as well. I'm just gonna pray for us as we move into this space. God, we come into your presence this morning knowing that sometimes we are focused more on externals than our hearts. Sometimes we're default to sort of the individual knows best versus paying attention to the fruit that is being born. God, sometimes we want to think it's about earning and we just want to rock it when really it is about the grace that we experience as we train, as we follow the invitation that you give to us that we may be shaped into your image, God, so that we do not miss the boat, so that we do not miss the work you are doing within us and we do not miss the work you are doing in this world. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Speak to us. Reveal your heart to us. God, we do not want to be a bunch of rotten trees bearing rotten fruit. We want to be good trees bearing good fruit. God, to your glory. Speak to us, work in us that we may know you, that we may love you. And in this moment, please reveal to us our own hearts. As we come to celebrate communion, we may come and fully receive the goodness you have for us. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.